one of those. I want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Romans chapter 5. I couldn't imagine a better way for us to uh, put a uh, bow on the end of this week and celebrating what God has done as we gather together than consider this uh, incredible passage on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way it transforms our lives. Before I read it here in a moment, uh, I do want to say this, though. I don't know where Pastor Nate went, but uh, RVBS would not be what it is without that crazy guy. And so I am so thankful for him. It's not many uh, places you go when you have a special event. You just say, hey, write a song for it. And he writes songs for VBS every year and writes songs for our worship service. And I'm so thankful the way he uses his gifts to serve uh, in this way. So many people to be thankful for. And I am just uh, in awe every year, including this year, of how many people are so passionate uh, and use all of their gifts to serve Christ in this way. Uh, I often have kids tell me it's their favorite week of the year, but I often have VBS workers here tell me it's their favorite week of the year, and that's something to really be thankful for. We as a church uh, really want to minister to uh, children. We want to minister to families. If you walk through our building, you see how much effort we put into our children's wing of our building. It's not just a uh, a once-a-year, week-long commitment that we have, but a commitment that we have as a church. Uh, We want uh, families, we want children to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And this morning we consider it in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 10 of Romans chapter 5 and then pray for God's mercy as we look at His Word together this morning. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand with a sense of awe and wonder that God has spoken to us, that He caused it to be written and we have the very words of God. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we look into Your Word and we see these amazing words of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to gain a better understanding of them today. Whether the person gathered here is not a Christian, whether the person has been a Christian for 60 years, 
Lord, we need this message, and we need to understand it better and more clearly. And Lord, I pray that people would put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time this very day. And I pray that all of us would be strengthened in the truth of the gospel because we've come here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of my younger daughters looked at me a while back and said, Daddy, you're a lot of things. It seems like it just hit her all at once. And so she started rattling them off. She said, you're a daddy. You're a husband. You're a son. You're a brother. You're a pastor. You're a professor. You're a writer, an author. You're a coach. You're a lot of stuff. And I said, well... I hadn't really thought about it like that, but I guess you're right. But you know, if you think about your own life, there are a lot of hats you wear as well. There's a lot of things you could say about who you are. But what we want to talk about this morning is, who are you? Back behind all of the things that you do. See, it's one thing to say, who are you, and talk about the various roles that you perform. But what is the real issue back behind those things that is who you really are? What holds them all together? What is it back behind the stuff that you do that says who you really are? See, the answer to that question will affect how you do all of those things that you do in life. But not only that, it will not only affect how you do all of the things that you do in life, it will also affect how you feel about them, how you think about them, your attitude as you do them, but even beyond that, is whether or not you enjoy them, whether or not you have an excitement about life. A sense of identity that transforms, uh, that that transcends rather the the difficulties of life, the storms of life, the, the pains of life. The Apostle Paul's letter here to the church in Rome helps all of us to answer the question of who we are. Who we really are. Who we are back behind the stuff that we do. And he does that in a few ways. Uh, In the very beginning of the book, he talks about God and the character of God. And he says that God is creator. Then he talks about the reality of what is true about all people since Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's that we're sinners. All of us. Christian, non-Christian, anywhere you are in the world, we are sinners. We have a sin problem. And yet God is sinless, He is perfect, He is righteous, He is the Creator. What do we do about that problem? You see, the answer to that, the answer to that shapes everything. What we do, how we do it, and how we feel about it. What is the bottom line in our lives? Do we answer to Someone or something outside of us? Or do we try to run our lives ourselves? Or look to something in the created order to provide the meaning and significance that we need out of life? That is the issue. 
Paul in chapter 5 is pulling together the first part of this letter and he's preparing for the last part of the letter. The first part of the letter is doing those things very clearly to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all includes all, every one of us. If we thought about it for a moment, none of us would really reject that truth because If I were to ask you, have you lived up to all of your own expectations? Have you been the person that you have expected yourself to be? If you were honest, you would say, no. I've let myself down time and time again. Well, if we don't even live up to our own expectations, we certainly don't live up to God's expectations. Our expectations are limited, and yet God is perfect. God is holy. The answer that God gives to the problem is Jesus Christ. He came and He died for sinners, though He had no sin. God the Son coming and dying for sinners, paying the penalty for their sin and rising from the dead that they might be able to be justified. A word we'll look at here in a minute. Declared righteous in Him. That's the answer that God gives. And so if we're going to answer the question of who we are, there's a few questions that are key. The first one I see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 of Romans is, are you trusting in faith or works? It's a simple question. Is your life built on the fact that you believe what God says about your sin, about who He is, and that He has given the answer to that problem in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin, who was raised that you might be able to be saved, declared righteous because He paid the penalty for your sins? Do you live by faith, faith in Christ Jesus? Or do you live by works? Do you say, I don't need that. I'm going to do this and I'll be okay. Whatever this is. Whether it's following some other path that promises a way to be right in the end. Whether it's just doing what you want to do at all times. Whether it's trying to be so good and so kind and so charitable that somehow, some way you say, yes, if I am good enough and kind enough and I give enough, I will be okay in the end. All of this under the banner of works. Are you trusting in faith or works? Look with me at the very beginning of chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Romans. Therefore, in other words, in light of all that has been said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. The word justified just means declared righteous. These talking specifically about those people who are over here and they are trusting in faith, faith in Christ. They were unrighteous, they were sinners. Christ was righteous, Christ paid the penalty for their sins so that He could be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Him. That He could declare them righteous because the penalty was paid in full. That's who He's talking about. And the whole other category are people who say, I don't need that. 
whatever else they think will make it all okay in the end, they say they don't need that. You know, the sin that we commit where we don't meet God's expectations is really an issue of us saying, I don't need your standards, O God. And God, in His amazing grace, comes and bears the wrath for guilty sinners. Look, at, look with me at chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, if you'll flip over just uh, one, probably one page or in the, just in front of where we are in your Bible. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or credited as righteousness. Now notice the contrast. It cannot be... 90% over here and 10% I will put my faith in my works. No, to the one who does not work. Now, he doesn't mean that after you believe in Christ, you don't do things in his name. He means that you don't do work that you offer to God saying this will be enough. Or that you offer to yourself and say this will be enough. I'll be okay in the end because of what I do. Look at what it promises in the next uh, portion of this verse. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over here, if the penalty for your sin debt is paid, you're forgiven, you're united by faith to Christ, you are at peace with God. The the rebellion, the sin, the wrath that you deserve was paid by Jesus Christ. It's peace with God. Over here you say, I'll go my own way, and the Bible says no other way but faith in Christ brings you peace with God. Now it's important to note here in Romans 5 that when he says peace with God, it's different than what what Paul says, uh, for instance, in uh, Philippians 4, 7, where he talks about the peace of God. The peace of God in Philippians 4, 7 is the peace that we have because we have put our faith in Christ, and it changes the way we feel. This peace with God is not that. It's the objective reality of the truth of the gospel. That if you put your faith in Christ, you are at peace with God, and that's true whether or not uh, you feel like it or not. The issue is the war with God is over. God says... Not only that I declare you righteous, but the Bible is this incredible uh, picture that for those who are declared righteous when they put their faith in Christ, God doesn't leave us in the courtroom and turn us out in the world. Then he says, and come here now that I've declared you righteous. You are my son. A child of God. You can call Jesus brother. God, Father, and the Holy Spirit indwells you. Peace with God. Now, it does bring the peace of God. But here the issue is that this gospel is true outside of any of us. And the key is that we give unconditional, glad-hearted, humble surrender to the fact that Jesus is King. And that means I am not King. 
I answer to the creator of the world. I don't answer to myself, a created being. That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? When, when Paul talks about the fact that God is creator, the very fact if you believe that there is a creator to the world means that you better have to deal with him. That you can't be the bottom line, he must be. And by the way, no matter how much we try to deny that there is a God and that He created the world, all of us within ourselves know it to be true. I've got this Apple watch on my arm. No one has ever walked up to me one day and said, that watch, I wonder how that came together. I I wonder if that's an accident. Nobody's ever said that. Why? Because when you look at something as complex as this watch, you know that there was a maker. Nobody ever walks up to a car and say, I wonder how those parts came together. I wonder if there was just some big explosion and crash and all of a sudden it produced this car. Now, I've had cars that look like they were produced like that. But, but nobody's ever said that to me. Why? They see the complexity of a car and they know automatically, intuitively, that somebody made that car. An Apple watch in a car, the ultimate infantile design compared to the intricacies of the cosmos. To look at the cosmos and say, I wonder how this happened, is to deny what you really know within your heart and soul. There is a maker. And you have to deal with him That maker is obviously king of his created order, not his created beings. And so all that putting your faith in Christ is doing is acknowledging there is a king, a creator king, and he's not you. He's provided a way even for a sinner like you. He is Lord. He is Savior. Look with me at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to point out to you here that one verse, in these first two verses, we have all of eternity and the issue of salvation embedded within them. The peace with God that comes because of what God has done in Christ is an objective fact. We live on this side of the cross. That is a past reality of what God has done. Now, when we put our faith in Him, and now we have access to God because we're His very child, that is our present reality. We stand not wondering if we've done enough over here trusting in our works, but by faith we stand in grace. Our hope is outside of us. It's what God has done in Christ that gives us access. And we live in the present by grace. And then we live with the hope of future glory. The hope of glory. The language here is pointing to the future. In fact, the verb tense is the future. The glory of God when God in the end consummates His kingdom and brings all things to their resolution. And Christ is seen as king by everybody, but there's a great division between those who put their faith in Him and those who did not. The reality of the future, past, present, future, the dividing line in the world is Jesus Christ. 
You see, all of these realities have to do with where we stand in relation to God and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that God gives us a look behind the curtain and points us the way to live by faith. We have objective peace. We have present access. We stand in grace and we have future hope of glory. And hope here is not used by in the sense of something that might happen. It's certainty about what God has said about the future. What's the alternative? If you're trusting in what you do to make sure that you're okay in the end, there's a subjective angst about your life. There's a turmoil because you wonder, have I ever done enough? Have I appeased the maker of this world? And since you're trusting in yourself, it's a lonely proposition to pursue it. And you're never quite sure if you've gotten there. So angst, turmoil because of war with God, loneliness, and doubt. But secondly, are you marked by joy or fear? Verses 3 through 8. Look at the first part of verse 3. Not only that, but, it's a strong contrast here, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that's not to be expected. He, he's hitting us with something. We rejoice in glory. Yes. Not only that, we rejoice in sufferings. Well, what is he doing? He's anticipating an objection here. Somebody comes along and says, well, I'm not a Christian, and I look at your life, and you suffer just as much as I do. Some good that's doing you. He's anticipating the objections. And he's saying here, listen, there is a joy that is so powerful that it allows us to rejoice, he says, in our sufferings. Not because of them. We aren't thankful for our sufferings. We're thankful for what God is doing through them. Somebody says, if God is for you, why do you suffer as much or more than I do? Where's your joy then? Not only does the believer have these joys, but these joys remain in our suffering. Look at verses 3 as it continues. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing... That there's a frame of mind that the, the gospel, the faith that we have in Christ, produces about the reality of how we think here and now. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. That endurance produces character. That character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame. Now, now that, that's an incredible picture here. If someone is training to be an athlete uh, for something... And they're, they're, they're doing the, the hard work of getting in condition. They don't cut off what they're doing from everything else in their life. Right? They don't think about the conditioning just as the conditioning in the moment. I am, why am I torturing myself for no purpose? They don't do that. Why? Because there is a purpose. They're trying to hone their body so they can excel at the sporting endeavor that they're doing. So when they feel like quitting, they push themselves to say, there is purpose in this. If there wasn't that purpose, they probably wouldn't be doing it. So he says, here are the sufferings that we face. We know that because there is a God who is creator, 
who has shown his love for us and brought us into his family in Christ, who's promised the truth about the end, that what we go through here and now has purpose. And, and that brings hope. And the joy that hope brings means that, uh, that, that this rejoicing, even in suffering, because we know that suffering brings endurance, that endurance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, so it puts us back at the issue of hope. And so we have grown our hope because we've continued to hope in the difficulty, and therefore when we face difficulties in the future, we're more equipped to handle them well. Think about that. Think about that. Who would not want that? There's only one alternative, and that is fear in suffering. Somebody that doesn't have the hope that they're connected to the creator God of the universe who said that because of what his son has done, their sins are forgiven and they're in the family of God and he gives promises for eternity. Somebody who doesn't have that and they just stare at the suffering as if the suffering is all that is before them, then you respond to suffering with fear. And when you respond to suffering with fear, not seeing any purpose in it, you feel like you're coming to an end. You're coming undone. When you feel like that, you tend to compromise and and look for satisfaction in all kinds of ways. Anywhere you can find it. After all, you're going through this. You deserve to have what you want in every other way. And when you reach out for that compromise, it doesn't satisfy, so it drives you further into despair And because you have compromised, you feel shame, which causes you to fear all the more. That's a cycle too. It's a very real one. If there is no purpose in our sufferings, it is a cruel life indeed. Now, we are not thankful for the sufferings, no. We don't rejoice for our sufferings. Suffering is in the world because sin in the world. Suffering is in the world because of the fall. We call it what it is. And yet, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that in them God has not abandoned us. That God is working His purposes through them. And that ought to be obvious to us for what is the very object of our faith. A cross. You know what the Bible says? Jesus went to the cross and endured the shame for the joy that was set before Him. Our very model of the one we put our faith in gives us the joy because in the worst uh, wicked act of human history, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, fully God, fully man... There was joy because of the purpose of it, because it paid the penalty for guilty sinners and there would be a people saved in Jesus' name. We know in all the lesser ways that we suffer, that is the reality for all believers. Look at the second part of verse 5. Because, or it could be translated here, since. Since God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know God's love. The cross is the emblem. We can never doubt God's love for us. There is a bloody cross 
And there is an empty tomb that's been poured out in our hearts. Hearts here is controlling center. In the very depths of your being, the one who suffered the most did it for joy. You are the joy if you put your faith in Him. You are the joy. You're the purpose is the salvation of a people. And so when we go through our sufferings in His name, we know that sufferings often cause us to look to Him, to depend upon Him. I've met so many people in my life who are going through something very terrible, something they would have never wanted in their life. But they say in the midst of it, this woke me up. To remind me how much I need Jesus. And my faith in Him has never been stronger than in this suffering. You see, suffering can cause a chain reaction that leads to hope. Which causes you to be all the stronger in facing suffering. One of my favorite older writers, devotional writer named J.R. Miller says that Christian joy is not natural exhilaration. It is converted sadness. Now get that. It's not natural exhilaration. It's not a thankfulness for the thing in and of itself. So the person who's sick, who says this sickness has brought me closer to Jesus, says, doesn't say, oh, this sickness is great. What they say is this sickness has been converted to joy because of what God has done through it. It's not natural exhilaration, it is converted sadness. And that's why believers go through all of the same things everyone else goes through. And yet, there can be joy. Because there is purpose. And nothing that we go through can take away the promise of eternity. The forgiveness of our sins. The mercy of God. The fact we are children of God. Look with me, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now this is answering a second objection. First objection was, you suffer just like everybody else. Some God, some gospel. Now the objection is, oh, you name his name? Well, look at all the things that you still do. Justified. You have to be kidding me. But notice the way he argues in verse 6. For while we were still weak, the word means powerless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he gives a human illustration. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Then verse 8, back to God. But God shows, and the word could be translated, proves. God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The substitutionary work of Christ by which we're declared righteous. Now get the way the argument is going. The argument is, if you're justified, declared righteous, a child of God, and you struggle, of course He's going to take you to the end. For when He set His love upon you, there was nothing in you that was lovable. If he did that, he will certainly see the justified through to the end, which is glorification. If he came to you when you were powerless, when you were a sinner who was embracing your sin, not repenting of it, and he's going to go on later to call it being an enemy of God, 
If he came to you and worked in your life when you were powerless, when you were reveling in your sin, when you were an open enemy of God and poured out his love on you by what he did on the cross and giving you the gift of faith, then after you're his child, do you really think he's going to abandon you? No way. See, the argument is here is that if he's already done a harder thing, he will certainly do the lesser thing. You see, what Christ has done for all who trust him by faith was not done for any inherent goodness in those who come to faith in him. It was done to a people completely undeserving. And the Bible says the best righteousness anybody ever had to author, offer was filthy rags. Since God's love on the cross was not based on any righteousness in us, then we can be completely sure that that love will see us to the end. He died for us. And by the way, this transforms everything. This takes away the fear of living. Uh, think about it. You have a child, and that child does things that are wrong, but they know their parent absolutely loves them no matter what they do. It's unconditional and their parent's going to be there. They're going to correct when they do wrong, but they know their parent is for them. There is a security in that family love that shapes the way they see the world. You take another family. This family, the parent is always harsh, They tell the child they have to perform to earn their love, whether they openly say that or just imply it. And and you you, you have to earn what you get from me. That child is marked by an insecurity because the love has to be earned and the child never knows if they've done enough to earn it. So there's an insecurity that affects the way they see the world and they see the world through fearful eyes. The one over here, even when they do something wrong, they have a security and they know that there is still love on the other side of it. So they can have joy even when they are being corrected. Even when they are going through difficulty. The same is true with us. If you know that the love of God in Christ was settled for you on the cross and you've put your faith in Him, then you can face anything you face and have joy because nothing's ever going to take anything away from you that's going to steal the blessings of eternity. And if you think you have to work to earn your place in God's sight, you will live in fear and discontentment and insecurity. You see, it affects the way you think and live here and now. It's not just something about the future, though it is something about the future. It's transformative here and now. See, he's answered the objections. Oh, you suffer like everybody else. Yeah. And it doesn't steal my joy. Oh, oh, look, you don't always do what's right either. Yeah. And it's not based on my performance. It's not based on my works. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing I can do to erase that work those who have truly put their faith in Him. And that leads us to verses 9 and 10, the very end. And he puts it very directly. Are you eternally saved or lost? Faith, joy, because salvation is in Christ and secure. 
works, fear, wondering if you've done enough, is to be lost. Salvation, through what Christ has done, are you wondering if you've done enough? Look at verses 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, the death of Christ, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, the saved here is future. We will be saved from the wrath of God at the day of judgment because we are children of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, made friends and even family, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, it's future tense, by His life. Now it points us here to two aspects of the work of Christ. The one who puts their faith in Him believes that on the cross... He died to pay the penalty for your sins. And you can be declared righteous because He paid the penalty for your sins. But that's not all that He did. The life that He lived, His perfect righteousness is credited to you. You are seen by God the Father as if you have the righteousness of God the Son. The perfect righteousness of Jesus. You are as accepted by the Father as Jesus is. That's the incredible wonder of the gospel. That's what it is to be saved. To know at the end of the day, you will not uh, suffer judgment because you are in Christ. You have His righteousness and the Spirit is with you. And God will no sooner reject you than He would reject Jesus, God the Son. That affects everything. And the only alternative is to think, you know, I'll reverse my sin debt by the things that I do. And at the end of the day, my righteousness is what I'll trust in. That is to be lost. That is to face the day of judgment and not be justified by the blood of Christ. That is to face the wrath of God. That is to not only be an enemy of God now, but be an enemy of God for eternity. That is to not be reconciled. Not have the war declared over because of what Christ has done. That is to not be saved. Your faith has to be in Christ. In His work of atonement, paying the penalty for your sin, in His righteous life offered to you, His passive obedience and His active obedience, which results in the fact that you can be forgiven of your sins and be in the family of God forever. But there is a very real opposite to that. Think about it. Who are you? Not the hat you wear. You might be a plumber. You might be a teacher. You might be a doctor. You might be a 
housewife. You might be a lawyer. You might, not the hat you wear. You might be a father, a brother, a son, a daughter. Not the hat you wear. But what is it that you're doing all of that in light of? Do you really believe that your works at the end of the day are going to secure your eternity? Even if you say you do, there's a fear in your heart because you don't know if you will do enough. And that is to live lost. And to die lost is to face an eternity apart from the presence of God. But you don't have to live that way. The who are you can be, I am a person who trusts in faith. Faith in Christ, who died for my sins, who was raised that I might be declared righteous, who will return and gather me with all of His other children to be with Him forever. And because of that, I can even suffer. And it won't steal my joy. Because I know by what Jesus Christ has done, I am saved. And in the last day, I will be saved for all eternity. I wonder if that's who you are. If it's not, it can be. Christ came for sinners. That means you're a good candidate. Christ came for the ungodly. We are the ungodly. And if you put your faith in Him, believing that He paid the penalty for sinners, that He rose from the dead, that He's returning to consummate His kingdom, bringing future glory, you can have faith, joy, and salvation. I pray that you would do that today if you've never done it. And if you have done it, we all have to keep growing in faith, growing in joy, and growing in resting our lives on our salvation. Would you respond today as God leads? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for this incredible week. I thank you for this Lord's Day. I thank you for this portion of your word. It is amazing. And I pray for the person here today who's never put their faith in Christ, that they would today, that they would cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, believing that Christ paid the penalty for sinners, that Christ was raised from the dead, and Christ will return and consummate His kingdom. And Lord, all of us, I pray that this portion of Your Word causes us to see that we are to rest in these truths, and that we are to live not for ourselves, but to Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.